Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. There is a better way to practice architecture. When you build a thriving business, you will then have the time and the financial resources to do your best work, to design the architecture that you want to design. We've built a powerful program of resources, training, and community for you, the small firm architect. We'll show you how to build a better business so you can be a better architect. Entree Architect Academy. To learn more, visit the homepage at entrearchitect.com. You're listening to Entree Architect Podcast, and this is episode 183. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, whether you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, FreshBooks, Core by BQE Software, and RCAT. And I'm going to share more about these great companies later in the show. But before we get started here, just take a quick note to schedule some time later today, as soon as you're finished listening here, to go visit each one of them and let them know that you appreciate them for supporting us, the Entree Architect community. Carol Kurth, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, Mark. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's, it's great to have you here. Um, 
it's been a long time that I wanted you to be on the show. Uh, we're longtime friends. We work in the same region, belong to the same AIA chapter. Uh, I've been working side by side here in Westchester County for a long time. Um, so I, I appreciate you taking some time out to come on the show and share some of your knowledge. Sounds great. I'm happy to do it. Let me uh, introduce you to the listeners. Carol is the owner of Carol Kurth Architecture and Interiors, based right here in Bedford, New York, not too far from where I am here in Westchester County, New York, um, specializing in architecture and interiors. And Carol does some beautiful, beautiful work, so you should check her out. Uh, we'll share some links on the homepage later on. Um, but uh, Carol's a popular, also a popular keynote speaker and is sought after by media for her insights on architecture and interior design, sustainability, design trends. And she's won numerous awards for, for design and has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, multiple national shelter publications. And she's been featured on television, NBC News, MTV Cribs, one of my favorite shows growing up. I love it. <laughs> uh, Carol is a longtime friend of mine, as I mentioned, and um, I've learned so much from her just from watching what she does and from, from, uh, from Carol sharing with me. She's always been open to sharing her knowledge with me uh, as an architect, and I wanted to bring her here today to the Entree Architect podcast so she can share some of her knowledge with you as well. So, Carol, I shared a little bit about who you are and, and uh, what you do with our listeners I'd like you to sort of take over here and share a little bit about your origin story. Take a two or three minutes, maybe more if you need it, to share your origin story. Where did you discover architecture and what inspired you to enter this profession and share that sort story to where you are today? Okay, so a little trip down memory lane, I guess, is what we're doing. Exactly. Um, so um, I grew up in Washington Heights, which is the northern tip of Manhattan. It's kind of this little enclave neighborhood that really sits at the pinnacle of Manhattan, pretty much on a cliff, uh, looking across the Hudson River and seeing the cliffs in the distance of um, New Jersey. So um, as a backdrop for sort of a visual cliffs and very close to the cloisters, which was in Fort Tryon Park and was a destination that I spent a lot of time at as a child. Mm -hmm. um, I would say when I was really young, um, I was always into crafts, which is a popular thing these days. Um, but back then, I, I felt like a lot of people weren't doing these sort of um, little craft things. And I, in particular, was uh, making dolls and, and doll houses. And I, when I was uh, 13, I took a class at the Cloisters. And it was a medieval kind of a summer program. And before that, I sort of knew that I wanted to do something with building, I was always building blocks and so on and so forth. But at that juncture, um, I took this class at the Cloisters on doll making and um, the New York Times did a little feature and I was 13 and I had my first publication <laughs> in the New York Times starting on my early. dolls, starting early. Yeah. And I then had a little exhibit at the Cloisters on my dolls. So I kind of had this um, thing, gee, you know, could I make dolls as a, you know, for the rest of my life? Could that be what I could do? Um, but then, of course, it was more like I'll make the doll houses. And I was and I just got very involved in that whole thing. I ended up um, going to Bronx Science. My favorite class was technical drawing, drafting. Everybody else hated it. That was my favorite. Um, so. Um, 
you know, that sort of set a framework. I was always good in math. I was always artistic, that sort of thing. Um, I also had a distant relative, Erwin Channon, who was a very philanthropic uh, individual. And there's a lot of um, buildings and things with his name on it because he was very charitable. But he also um, designed the Channon building. And so I was fascinated that wow, I have a relative who designed this skyscraper in Manhattan. Hmm. That was really an allure. And I was very close to his wife growing up, and she recognized my passion for dolls and craft, and she really encouraged me. And I used to visit her like once a month, I would say, from the time I was about 11, 12, till high school and beyond, she passed away at some point while I was in college. But uh she was always encouraging me, and she'd say, I'll show this to Erwin when he gets home. He was rarely home because, as the profession is, when you're an architect and you're in this world, you're busy working. So, um, you know, my my actual interaction with Erwin Shannon was certainly not as frequent as it was with, with my aunt. Um, but those two things, I think, formed a big catalyst for me. It's actually three things, the sight of my neighborhood and the love of the rocks and the terrain and the cliffs, the dolls, the doll houses, and sort of this you know, sort of nebulous idea of, wow, you know, building a building, designing a building. And I think that all kind of coalesced um, when I went to City College School of Architecture. And I think from the moment I arrived in that school and that setting, um, you know, my uh, my instincts as, an, as a future architect kicked in and I knew I was in the right place. So um, I feel like City College, I owe a tremendous debt to. I'm very involved over there um, in all sorts of ways with mentoring and speaking as alumni uh, relations association, so on and so forth. Um, But being at a school of architecture in the midst of a city where your professors were actually practicing architects and you could actually see work being built, you know, a really great setting for me as a, um, you know, future architect. So um, that's sort of the short story there, if that works for you. Yeah, yeah, it's a great story. I, I love hearing the stories of, of how architects become architects, because they're all different. But so there's so many themes that run through these stories. Um, and one is, is definitely an influential person. Somebody uh, along mm-hmm. the line introduced you to architecture. Um, mm-hmm. and, and all of the things that led up to that fit together like a puzzle, like you said. And, exactly. And it's, it's, exactly. it's fascinating. I hear so many architects describe their story and not even put that puzzle together, many of them, uh, until they tell that story and, and realize that, you know, it all sort of was that person that, you know, sometimes it's a, a relative, sometimes it's a parent, sometimes it's a teacher, um, that believed in them and, and sort of guided them, saw some some uh, spark of creativity and art, you know, something that led them mm-hmm. to become architects. Um, it's a really interesting mm-hmm. story to hear that. So once you, once you graduated from City College, um, how did you get to where you are today practicing residential architecture in Westchester County? Uh, well, actually, I worked throughout school, in, whether I was working for a professor or I was um, doing part-time jobs. I was always somehow had my um, hand in some part of the architectural f- profession while 
I was in school. So I'd been working in some offices. I actually worked in Seattle for a while. Um, and then I, I got a job that ultimately, I guess I was in my end of my fourth year. Um, I ultimately was working there at the same time as I was actually on the faculty at City College for a while. So I was teaching as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I ultimately became a partner in that firm, married um, my former husband, who's an architect. And um, we built up a pretty neat practice of design build. And um, in 1995, I went off on my own in more ways than one and um, opened up my firm here in Bedford. And we've been specializing in custom residential architecture, some commercial work. Um, usually it relates to a, a client that I had as a, you know, as doing the residential uh, home. And um, a lot of them are on really complicated sites. And I think even at the start of my career, I was undaunted by cliffs. And like I said, my neighborhood, the cloisters, all of these types of things. I saw a cliff and I gravitated towards it. You know, I did not shy away from designing a house on a on a rocky mountain or, you know, having to blast to put it in. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I think there was a little bit of fearlessness. Maybe today with the way professional practices and the litigious society we're in, I might think differently. But at the time, it was just, you know, pure adrenaline and excitement, like being able, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, there's falling walls. And now I'm going to put this house on a cliff, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you say cliffs in New York City, I bet you there's a lot of listeners saying there are no cliffs in New York City. I, I recommend that anybody who's <laughs> listening, they should Google New Jersey Palisades and look at some of the pictures of the New Jersey Palisades that you see from New York. They are beautiful. They are massively huge. And they are basically, that's the Hudson River, basically is made between these palisades that the that the earth shifted and the created the river and where it shifted they created these massive sheer cliffs of beautiful red rock um and so definitely check it out and look it up and you'll see why carol is so inspired by those cliffs and why it became such an important part of who she is and what she's done and i want to add one other piece to yeah. this it that it's not only the cliffs of the Palisades, which are these beautiful sheer um, cliffs, but my family um, has a tradition of going up to Mohonk, and yes, I've been going yeah. there my entire life, as has my father. And if anybody has been to Mohonk, beautiful. that is basically a lake form, you know, that came out of like a glacial rock outcrop. It's just absolutely exquisite. And so that setting also with the Mohonk Mountain House sort of perched along those cliffs is another piece of why that whole cliff type architecture has always, you know, appealed to me. Yeah, we'll have photos, uh, links to photos of both the Palisades uh, and the Mohonk House on the on the, uh, the show notes. So check out the show notes and we'll have links to those things so people can and, see and what they are. You can check out my Instagram, too, because um, I've taken my office on outings up to Mohonk. We were there about two weeks ago, and we did lemon squeeze and climb the cliffs. And um, you can check out some photos there, what, too. What's your, your username on Instagram? At Carol Kurth. Okay. We'll have that also in the show notes. We'll have all your social media in the, sh in the show notes as well and a link okay. to your website uh, to the office. Thank you. Um, so the um, you talked about the cliffs and how they sort of became um, 
an inspiration and you and you focused on residential architecture right from the beginning um, right from the get-go yes. right so so a lot of architects look at that and say you're sort of you're sort of narrowing yourself too much architects very often uh, want to be generalists they want to do everything they want to be able to do all this you know and do commercial work and residential work and institutional work and restaurants and they want to do everything so why did you choose to do just residential work well you know i i think actually in the very beginning, I was in a firm where um, I ultimately was a partner, and we did do a little bit of everything. We did some warehouses, and we did some commercial work, and we did all this. I never felt the passion there. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, the passion was always was about the site and the building and the client piece of the inspiration. Like, what is it about the client, and how do I sort of read that person or that family's personality, and how do I infuse that and marry the, you know, the program, the site, and the building together? And for me, that's the excitement. And, you know, each time it's different. There's no two sites alike and no two sets of clients alike, no two sets of budgets alike. And um, maybe it's a little ADD in me, but I, that variety is what I thrive on. And, um, you know, I really found that I could also get into the most detail. I like that holistic vision of being able to um, work with a client on finding the site and down to at the end of the day, you know, the table settings. Um, so, you know, it's sort of that Frank Lloyd Wright yeah. piece of inspiration, designing everything from beginning to end. So, um, you know, for me, that's where the excitement is. And I, you know, I, I would love to do a restaurant because I feel you could do the same kind of thing or a hospitality yeah. building. Yeah. And, you know, who knows, maybe one day we'll get there right now. We're, you know, just doing all sorts of fun projects on the residential realm. But, um, yeah, that's what excites, you know, yeah. my passion. Yeah, and and doing residential work allows you to do that. Allows you to sort of take the entire uh, process of design from the site work through to the architecture, to the interiors, to the furniture, to the accessories. It allows exactly. you to do all of that. And if you are generalized and you're doing everything, and you are a small firm, you can't do that with with if you're so spread out. It also allows you to to market yourself. Right. You can market yourself absolutely much better that way. That's one of the things that that um, drew me to you right from the beginning. When I moved to Westchester County in the mid 90s, um, you were one of the first people that I that I, I think I may have even interviewed with you. I don't you did. And I remember yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> that and, was great. And and the fact that you had a store and you still do. You have a storefront office right in the heart of Bedford Village. Unheard of in architecture to have a storefront so right away, I'm like, this woman understands what she's doing here. Um, and <laughs> and you you were all over the newspapers. You were all over the, the magazines. You were marketed yourself well. Architects were not marketing themselves, um, let alone well. You were doing it well, and you were doing it because most architects don't or didn't at the time. Um, and we were talking you a know, little it's, bit. It's so ahead. interesting that you should you should bring that up, Mark, because, um, well, first of all, I remember when you came to interview, yep. and I always was thinking, gee. Hey, I wish Mark had ended up working here. But you know what? You forged your own path, and it's pretty incredible. And you and Anne Marie have done a really amazing job in in your Five Cat Studio. Thank you. Um, but one one of the things that's really interesting is that architects were pretty much um, advised, admonished in the Code of Ethics, forbidden to market and advertise till 1978, when the AIA changed their Code of Ethics. And I. Be- 
think it was probably mid 1980s to when architects actually got the message because right. there was no internet to sort of say, hey, you can advertise now, or there was no mailing that said, hey, architects, today you can put an ad in the paper for your services. So there was a long lag time between when the actual logistics for architects to allow it to happen, and then it took another 10 years for architects to actually go ahead and um, go do it. Yeah. So I think I was probably on the early end of that. I always found um, the media fascinating on the magazine front, um, and maybe it had to do with when I had that first publication at 13, and then I had another one at 17 um, in Brides Magazine where my dolls were displayed, and I was always fascinated. Wow, you you know, this is really interesting. I could be doing this, but the whole you know world potentially could see what I'm doing. That's really quite the impact. Um, and so, you know, little by little, I sort of started to think about, hmm, what if I just send this into the local paper? Huh, what if I just send this, you know, picture and a little paragraph to, you know, this magazine? And sure enough, it, so it sort of um, worked um, just by sheer trial and error. And as it turned out, magazines and newspapers really wanted content. I'm, you know, and hearing from an architect, um, it was a novel thing. And again, it was because architects really weren't advertising or marketing because we were not allowed to. So, you know, now there's tons of content. There's probably way too much content. Um, so now editing is what everybody's doing. You know, let's edit that content. We don't need that. Let's streamline that. So it's very interesting because to me, it sort of now begs the question is, what is the relevance of architecture and design to clients and to the people that we need to stay in business? And how do we keep our, well, my phone's ringing. That's a good step. <laughs> yeah, that's a good step. Right there, right? <laughs> um, but how do we stay relevant? Um, how do we keep ourselves fresh? How do we keep ourselves at the forefront? Do we go further into a niche market or do we expand into multiple markets? And all these sort of forecasting questions that I honestly don't have the answers to and I'm always searching for and trying to speak to people about, you know, where do you see the profession going and, you know, what do you think is the next new thing? Because it's important for us. We don't want to get stale. We want to reinvent ourselves and in a certain way, you know, like Madonna reinvents herself, um, you know, she stays relevant all the time. And, you know, you can, you know, you think back to your childhood of, you know, all the, you know, music you listen to and, you know, who are the ones who stay relevant and who are the ones who you never heard from again, you know, the one hit wonder kind of thing. Um, I think in a lot of ways, it's the same for architecture. How do you keep coming up with new and creative ideas? Um, you know, how do you keep doing it differently every day, but yet still maintain, you know, a level of integrity, a level of professionalism, you know, you know, the workmanship, the detail. There's a lot of balls to juggle every single day on every decision. Good. If, you're, um, if you're looking at architecture from an individual point of view, like each architect, how how important is marketing and public relations to being relevant and to adding to that story of, of revel relevance, telling our own story in our own words and the way we do it. Um, how important is that at a local level? You know, it's, it, I, I would say the big firms definitely have it figured out because they have big marketing, public relations, 
divisions within their firms. And so, you know, they might have, you know, three, four, five people who are just dealing with their marketing. So since they clearly know that that's crucial, then on some level, we need to know that too. For a long time, I was really super disciplined and, um, you know, I'd get up at, you know, into my office at seven in the morning and I would spend that first hour from seven to eight, either returning calls for new clients or doing something public relations marketing wise, like try and write a paragraph and then try and either schedule a photo shoot or take a photo and, you know, the next day, maybe mail it to a magazine with a note, a little handwritten note. I've always been big on the handwritten note thing. Um, and, you know, sometimes um, it worked and sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it would take a while for somebody to call me. Sometimes I'd hear from somebody two years later who said, you know, two years ago you sent me this picture and whatever, and now I'm doing a story. Um, do you happen to have anything on XYZ? So, you know, you never know where some of this stuff lands and you have to keep the pipeline pretty full. Um, we sort of have this joke in the office, if we throw, you know, a pot of spaghetti against the wall, how many strands are going to stick? <laughs> and the pot of spaghetti might have like 100 strands and maybe only two stick. But, you know, those two might be the most important um, of those. You know, you, you know, you never know, you have to be really open to opportunity too. So um, I would say that's really important. Yeah. And, and, I love the idea of making it part of your everyday morning routine because I think that's uh, that's an issue that architects have, especially small firm architects. We're wearing so many hats. We have so many things to do. We're doing the design. We're doing the architecture. We're trying to do the business. And now we're going to do marketing too. That's something I hear all the time. How do I fit that in? Well, if you fit that into your first you know, couple of hours in the office, go in early, you know, dedicate a half hour every day to moving the ball forward in mm -hmm. marketing and and, mm -hmm. and uh, public relations, get something mm -hmm. written, and the next day you develop mm -hmm. that writing, and the third day you send it out, and the fourth mm -hmm. day you follow up. and Right, you just chip away at it a little piece at a time. Let's take a quick break here to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect. FreshBooks, Core by BQE Software, and RCAT. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for the whole team by project, and get organized with reports, communication, and notifications. My favorite feature at FreshBooks is the automated invoice reminders. It's a simple feature, and I think sending invoices and getting paid is one of the biggest barriers to our success as entrepreneur architects. Who has the time, right? But if we don't send out those invoices, we don't get paid. FreshBooks makes it easy to send out invoices and get paid online with a click of a button. And when your client doesn't pay on time, FreshBooks will send them a friendly email reminder automatically through a simple system that you control. Sign up for a free 30-day unrestricted trial and get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid faster. Visit EntreeArchitect.com slash FreshBooks to access FreshBooks for free for 30 days and be sure to enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. One of the most often requested resources here at the Entree Architect community is project management software. How do we keep our projects and our people organized while we grow as entrepreneur architects? Well, this podcast is sponsored by our friends 
the AIA Advantage partner, BQE Software. They are the makers of ArchiOffice. But BQE just released a new product built just for us architects. It's called Core. You may have heard about it. BQE built Core in response to what we want in a project management software. BQE Core lets you practically run your office from a single platform. Time and expense tracking, project management, dashboards, reports, billing, and accounting are seamlessly integrated in an easy-to-use interface that will save you time, effort, and money. And listeners to this podcast, the Entree Architect podcast, can get a free 15-day trial, free, for Core. Try it out at entrearchitect.com slash BQE. entrearchitect.com slash BQE. If you've been listening to this podcast anytime during the last few months, you've heard me talk about our friends, Arcat. And hopefully you're using their free resources every day as an architect. For those of you who have not yet checked them out, Arcat's a great tool for us small firm architects. Arcat has a huge library of free content, CAD, BIM, specifications, and tons more. And they've done all the work for you. If you need a spec, click over and download a CSI three-part specification in multiple formats, any way you want it. And how about a CAD detail or a BIM object? They're there, all free, at the click of a mouse. It's super simple. RCAD has tons of building products. Their content is there, ready for you to use, and it's all completely free. And you don't even have to register to download it. Check it out at RCAT.com. Have you tried out their newest free tool? It's called Charette. Create a project, assign tasks, share and collaborate with colleagues and clients in real time. Pull content from the RCAT database or from anywhere on the web and put it in Charette. Keeps it organized in all one place. And guess what? Charette is free too for the Entree Architect community. Visit them at entrearchitect.com slash RCAT, A-R-C-A-T, entrearchitect.com slash RCAT and click on the charrette icon to check them out and let them know that Entree Architect sent you. FreshBooks, Core by BQE Software and RCAT. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. You know, it's interesting, Mark, that, you know, the everyday keep the ball moving forward because I think a lot of people, in a sense, are doing it now. It's a little different if they're doing social media and they're putting out a, a tweet or a blog post or an Instagram photo every day. In a way, they are marketing. So if they kind of hone that a little bit and think about that a little bit, maybe those 10 minutes or 10 minutes of the half hour, and then you take that to the next level for another 20 minutes. And just do a little bit, you know, even if it's once a week on Friday, you call it your, you know, we used to call it Graphics Friday here or Marketing Friday, where we would, you know, devote an hour with, you know, taking a look at, you know, what competitions are we going to enter, if any, what um, awards are we going to enter, what do we need for that, let's schedule a photo shoot, you know, a month from now, you know, just to kind of figure it out. I think one of the small firm issues is if you're a single practitioner, it is, I think, one of the most daunting tasks to accomplish anything. I, I don't know how you do it. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't. My hat's off to anybody who's just a solo practitioner. 
you know, we're, we're now 10 people and two interns and I could probably be 20 here, but I think I'd lose my mind. <laughs> um, you know, we've had as many as 17 and I've actually scaled it back. I'm, I've learned to say no, which is a really unusual thing in this profession. Um, but I decided maybe five years ago that, um, I really wanted to do the things I wanted to do. I wasn't going to let the phone dictate <laughs> what I was going to do. So I've made some decisions about the kinds of projects I want to take on. Um, and so I've been trying to gearing my marketing towards what I want to do. So it, like rather than putting out fires all day long or, you know, oh, this person called, I have to take that project because you don't know where the next one is. I'm kind of, you know, really practicing this not being rude to people at all, but just, you know, I've referred so many projects on. I think I've even referred people to your firm and other smaller firms because, you know, you know, you only live once, so to speak. And, um, you know, I'm, I have some goals of what I want to be able to do and you can't do everything. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's funny you say that. And that leads back to target marketing, right? It's, mm -hmm. It leads back to making sure that you know your story, you know the type of work that you want to do. So you can you can do what you love. I, I actually tweeted the other day. I said, uh, you can't do what you love if you're too busy doing what you don't. Oh, my God. That's the most brilliant say. Oh, my God. Yeah. That absolutely sums it up. It's so true. Yeah. I mean, because you only have so many hours in the day, right? So if it's exactly. filled up with, with doing things you don't love doing, then you don't have time doing to do the things that you do love doing. And so, it's so true. And and there's so many things that you have to do that you may not love doing, right. but you can't do the things you love without doing th that piece of it, like insurance, you know, or, right. you know, just, or just those building the business, the bills, yeah. billing, you know, so the day to day stuff that you have to do. Um, yeah, it, that's time consuming in itself. And again, that's why as a solo practitioner to have to do that also, I just, I don't know. I feel like everybody should be thinking as a, as a triangle at a minimum, like a three person firm instead of a one. And this idea of solo practitioner maybe should evolve a little bit because, you know, architecture is a real team effort, especially nowadays with so many other things. I mean, we have so many consultants that we rely on, um, because there's so much expertise needed these days in so many aspects. Um, so I mean, I'm sure you see it too, Mark. I mean, you know, you need the wetlands consultant, you need the zoning consultant, yeah. you need, you know, the expediter in certain cases, you know, sometimes you might need an attorney if you're doing zoning things, you know, you need a soils engineer, you need a geotechnical, you know, on and on and on. Uh, your structural engineer, now you need your mechanical engineer. And all these things have costs associated with it. And, you know, when you start telling clients all these people you need, now you need an AV consultant, uh, you know, now in town of Bedford and a couple of other towns, you need a HERS raider. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, my goodness, <laughs> now we need a landscape. And they wonder why sometimes. architecture has gotten so expensive. Yeah. And, you know, then they say, well, what, I, you know, well, what are you doing? <laughs> you yeah. know, you, you, you're hiring 10 consultants. What are you doing? I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Just leading the team to yeah. orchestrate the consultants can be a full-time job. Yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. And 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 so how do you how do you um, when you when you I, let's let's think about that triangle, that the idea of that triangle really mm -hmm. sort of 
hit me. And if, if I was a sole practitioner mm-hmm. and, and I'm hearing you say this and I'm feeling it because every day mm-hmm. I'm, I'm falling further and further behind because I can, mm-hmm. I can only grow so big as one person. Right. Right. And mm-hmm. so if you're saying, okay, let's, let's, let's look at it as a triangle. How mm-hmm. is that, how is that, tri- that triangle structured? Who are those two other people? Well, aside from one being your head, the next being your right hand, the next being your left hand. <laughs> if you want to start with that. Yeah, well, there's um, the first triangle. There's your first triangle. I, You know, for me, it's about thinking about how can I be my most effective and my best self as an architect and a professional and try and reduce my stress level and try and do things well. And I'm not even talking about the work-life balance thing Mm -hmm. and the family and all that stuff, just taking that out of the equation. Um, What tasks can I delegate? And I think that's the biggest issue as a sole practitioner is delegating because in the beginning, it feels like it takes twice as long to explain it to somebody as then to do it yourself. And once you get over that hurdle and you don't think about the, um, you know, sort of that oh my God, I have to stop what I'm doing. It's going to take me three hours to do something that could take me five minutes. Yes, but those three hours are an investment in somebody else moving the ball forward for you because next time you'll have those three hours available because somebody else is going to be taking that piece on. And so you're, you know, you invest that time now to free you up later. Um, you know, it's like a payback. So, you know, which of the tasks that you don't like dealing with? Maybe it's insurance related. Maybe it's billing related. Maybe it's just picking up the phone. Maybe it's returning phone calls on a calendar. You know, so, you know, your first your first um, piece of this triangle, you know, might be an assistant. And it doesn't mean they're a receptionist and it doesn't necessarily mean they're a bookkeeper, but it's somebody, maybe it's an aspiring architect who is a high school student even or Maybe it's, a, you know, somebody who's, you know, uh, um, wanting to rejoin the workforce. And those are fabulous people to bring on board who, yeah. you know, they've been, you know, raising a child and, you know, they're looking for something part time to keep it interesting and exciting. And they whether or not they went to architecture school or they just love design, but somebody make sure it's somebody who has a passion for what you do so that they'll be excited about doing these mundane tasks and helping you to be a better architect. And I think that holds true of anybody you hire. And, you know, I think that's a key piece when you're hiring, you know, just, you know, it's not necessarily about their qualifications. You can look great on paper, but it's about the passion they'll bring to your firm to help elevate everybody in the firm so you know maybe your first person that you're putting on board is somebody like that and then the next person would be somebody who's going to help you with the you know either you know maybe it's construction site visits maybe it's somebody who is doing you know your details and your dimensioning and your construction documents or maybe it's a renderer you know you need somebody who's going to take on another task you know you might outsource let's say a renderer for a while until you can have one in house or, you know, there's just so many facets of this. Maybe it's an expediter that you're going to decide to hire that you wouldn't have normally, you were going to fill out all those forms yourself. You're going to do all that yourself. But now you say, you know what? I need those three hours to do design. I need those three hours to network. So, you know, 
I think the more people you can surround yourself with in a way that frees you up to be your best self is probably the better investment than you trying to stay up till two in the morning and then wake up at six and be sleep deprived. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's that work balance piece. Yeah. So I'm hearing you say, because I've been looking at you as a role model for years and I, and the, the three things that you've said so far about how you've become successful is is find a target you know when you're in your in your the type of work that you're doing mm-hmm. get good at PR and marketing mm-hmm. um, and now you're saying build a team yes um, are there are there other things that sort of got you to where you are today other than those three things oh my gosh there's, there's probably plenty of them um well, let's let's look at it from from somebody who is a sole practitioner who wants to get to a ten person firm. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. what's the next step? If after I focus on a target market, then I mm-hmm. I start doing some some um, early morning marketing PR work. Then mm-hmm. I then I start looking at figuring out who I should hire, and I hire maybe an assistant. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. what's the next step to get to the next? You know, to move that ball forward one more time. What, what should that person be doing? Networking and get out there into into. You know, you can network through other professionals who are looking to, you know, maybe connect you into their team. And it depends what kind of work you're doing, too. Um, But, you know, also just thinking of every interaction as an opportunity. I mean, I remember in the beginning I was meeting a lot of people because my children were in, let's call it nursery school. And so you're interacting with other parents. You never know who who they might know, you know, you, you, you sort of have to, um, put it out there. You know, I know in this day and age with all the digital, maybe people aren't even, uh, doing business cards, (laughs) but having business cards and just saying, you know, your friend might, you know, I'm happy to talk to them or they're buying a house. So, you know, you know, maybe they want to talk to me and then start building, you know, you can go to some real estate brokers and sit down and talk to them at one of their, you know, they usually have those Thursday meetings and you can go in and, you know, tell them about you and show them some examples of your work. You have to really network and get your name out there somehow into your community um, and let other people know that you're actually looking for work. They might not think you need work. They might not think you're yeah. looking for projects. They might think, hey, that person's busy. They don't understand that you have to be thinking six months from now, nine months from now. A year from now. And, and when you're a sole practitioner and, and you're on a project that is, let's call it a year long project, you're probably not thinking about, you know, what's next. You're just thinking, oh, yeah, well, when the time comes, something will happen or something will show up. And that's, you know, I think when you have other people on your team that you have to pay each week, you think a little bit more about how am I keeping these people busy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You I- know, or how am I paying for them? And, you know, and, and that all leads back to, again, focusing on one target and when you, especially when you're a sole practitioner or a small firm, it makes that networking easier too, because now you don't mm-hmm. have to go to all these different groups that, that are hitting all these different types of work that you're doing. You can focus on, if you're picking residential, you can focus on where am I going to meet lots of people who have houses who want to do work on their, on their houses. It's, when you mentioned nursery school, we, we had a, like... 10 years of a stretch of doing nursery school contact projects over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Either somebody that my kids went to nursery school with or friends of those people because exactly because I let them know what we did. They, they then we did some projects for them and then those people shared it with other people and 
And every time you meet another group like that, you have to make for one, you need to make sure they know what you do and how you do it. Uh, again, if it's focused on, on a specific market, much easier to tell that story in a very short amount of time. Um, and it, and then it, you can lead it into the marketing and then people have seen the marketing. And then when you tell them who you are, Oh yeah, I think I've seen an article about you or I've saw, I, I've seen your ad in, in mm -hmm. the magazine and, you know, and then, and then the team, the third thing that you had mentioned, the team makes that all possible. When you start building the team, then you could do more of that. You can do more development on your brand. You could do more mm -hmm. marketing. Then you can, you know, do more mark, uh, networking and meet more people. And then the system starts to, to grow and grow and grow. And then you can yeah, add it starts more people. To, it, yep. So, you know, on that note about, you know, the whole nursery school stream of yeah. people, and we've had that same type of experience where, you know, one friend, they go to a party, they see something that you did, and they're all excited. And then they tell somebody else who was looking for how and you know it sort of goes that way but the other piece i think that really is important i think that's you know it's just maybe it's just something i do but i mentioned earlier i'm like a real um, advocate of the handwritten thank you note yeah. um i have some um postcards that we've made up here in the office mm -hmm. mark you've probably received some but yeah. you know i'll sometimes if i see an article about one of my clients in the newspaper i'll clip it and i'll put an envelope and i'll just write you know you know, caught your article, congrats, and sign my name. Takes me literally one minute, put a stamp on it, mail it. And, you know, sometimes I'll get a call from them or a little email, thanks for, you know, you know, whatever. And then we catch up and then they say, hey, you know, we might be doing um, another project soon. You know, would you be interested? And I don't know, somehow that little stay in touch or that thank you, let them know you're thinking of you. You know, I have clients that I do a lot of um, art sourcing for, and in my head, I my head can be like a big file cabinet uh, encyclopedia sometimes, and I might remember some wall that somebody had, and I see a piece of art, and I might like shoot them a text of a piece of art. You know, if you're still looking for a piece of art, I just saw this great painting. Are you interested? And, you know, I have to say, a number of times people have said yes, um, but it lets you know that you still think of them, even though they're not your active client. Um, you're still thinking of them and everybody has their own little personal way of um, how they can stay in touch with somebody. Maybe, um, you know, maybe you saw them in the street and you pick up the phone and call them. I ran into a client at the gas station about a month and a half ago and we were chatting and then they sent me an email and said, let's get together. And now we're having lunch next week. I hadn't seen them. They called me and said, it's our 10 year anniversary. Let's, you know, Let's do it. So we're getting together. So, you know, there's little ways that you can uh, stay in touch. And these people are your marketing team behind you. You know, you if you can get them to help market you, that's just another uh, layer that's also helping build your firm and build your reputation. Um, so um, that also helps you stay relevant. So back to this relevant right. point. Um, how do you stay relevant in your client's mind from 10 years ago? I have clients now from 30 years ago, um, and I've done multiple projects for many of my clients. And I have to say it's because I somehow stay in touch. And it can be in the smallest way of at the holidays sending an e-blast and they're on it yeah. or sending cards um, or every so often we send some kind of a, an e-blast about something we've done. But 
you know, staying relevant in their minds. I mean, we've also had, you know, we've done sort of those giveaway things like we've made pads and pens and pencils and all that sort of thing. And every so often, every couple of years, I, you know, make a couple hundred and I send them to some of my clients. You know, it's just another way of staying on their mind. Right. And keeping that network warm. Keeping that net. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Don't let your network go cold because they could meet somebody else and, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, I haven't heard from that architect in 10 years. Yeah. You want to be top of mind. You want, Absolutely. you want, and that all leads back again to target marketing and, and marketing and PR because it's all out there and it, it may not be a direct hit when you put it out there, but it's, it's keeping the, keeping your brand and your office top of mind of the market of your network. They see your name on the, in, in the emails, they see your name on social media. They see that your name in the magazines, you send out, you know, uh, some notes here and there, you send out some gifts, you're keeping them warm. And so when they're ready for a project, the first person they're going to think of is Carol Kurth. If, if they, if somebody asks them for a reference, first name they're going to think of is Carol Kurth. That's exactly how it should be. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and if you work it, it works. Yeah. It, you know, and it does take time and it does take dedication and, you know, you know, you can go for a week or two without doing something, but if you're not sort of constantly at it, you're going to get leaks in your pipe. That's, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah, and exactly. architects don't like leaks. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Uh, we're, we're running up against the clock here, but I want to ask you one more thing because I think there's another piece that, that you do uh, and you do well and you do it consistently is awards. You, mm -hmm. you put a lot of time and a lot of effort uh, is, um, presenting, you know, pr uh, submitting for awards and you are very um, successful in that. How important is that? Obviously, you're spending a lot of time in, on doing that. So clearly you see that it's important. How important is that to, to the success of an architect? That's an interesting one. Um, so for me, you know, I, I like when my great projects get an award because I feel like my team has put in a tremendous amount of work. And I think we here in the office feel really gratified when we've gotten another award. And a lot of that is about the team here mm -hmm. and showing them that what we're doing has value. It also has value to my clients, especially if they ever sell their property. It's an award-winning house. Um, even though a lot of these awards are anonymous and people don't know who these clients are, the clients themselves do know. Yeah. Um, it as a, And then this is another controversial term, a woman architect, a female architect. I mean, I am an architect and I usually don't preface it necessarily with the woman-female thing. However, that all said, and all that political correctness, being an award-winning female architect definitely makes a difference, I think, in the minds of many. And so that's another reason that, you know, I sort of started on that track of, look, when we have a, po a project that I think is worthy of an award, let's go for it. Um, and now it's sort of been sort of built into what we do and how we time things mm -hmm. with photography and it's you just know, part it's, of your process. Now. It's now part yeah. of our process. Yeah. Yep. So it so it's 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 building morale is what you said. It sort Definitely. of it helps build your team that you, that your team is an award winning team. Exactly. They feel good about themselves. They feel good about each other. 
um, it's it's building credibility for your firm, mm-hmm. and it's and it's and it's giving back to your client again. It's another way to stay warm with your network to just go back to that client a year or two after that project is complete. Exactly. Get you're gonna get you're gonna go back for photographs. You, maybe you invite them to the award ceremony when you win the award. Exactly. It helps build that relationship all over again, uh, which then leads to new projects. It's interesting how many recurring projects that you know, recurring clients that you've had. Mm-hmm. Um, based on all this work that you do. And and what's very interesting what you just said is that you've systematized it, that it's become part of your system, that it's become part of the way you do it. It's part of your process. Um, is that something that you intentionally focus on, is making sure that you have systems and processes in place? You know, whether they're officially written with a yeah. timetable, no, but I have list after list. I, you know, I, I have like a list for marketing, a list for, you know, each project. And most of them are handwritten um, because it, for me, it's faster than putting it into some app or Excel spreadsheet. I mean, I've had those sort of computer systems that, you know, oh, that no longer is in that edition and it doesn't work and you got to transfer too much work. I like a nice piece of paper. <laughs> Check it off. Um, but... Um, we, we now know, you know, when we have a calendar, um, actually, um, it's sort of a little bit of a spreadsheet on that regard, but we know AIA awards are in the fall and New York city cottage and gardens awards are, you know, submissions are X. And so we kind of know now when the timeframe is that we have to do this, but we have targets here in the office to make sure we meet those, um, deadlines for photography you know we want to get those photos done a month ahead of time so we can get it all organized it takes a lot to put together you know a presentation to submit for the awards it's a it's a big endeavor but it's worth it um you know it's also great for our chapter for the aia yeah. it helps it's not just for me and my firm and my team and my client but it's also for us as a profession showing the public showing the world look architects have meaning architects are relevant what yeah. we do counts you know it's important so i think I'd encourage all chapter members to submit. There's awards at every level, whether it's conceptual design and those unbuilt projects that are in a drawer. You know, use those. Turn those into marketing material. Submit for unbuilt project awards. We all have those in the drawer. Uh, um, and they're worth something. Um, but I would, you know, if, if there was like a takeaway um, on an architect who was trying to start a practice, I would say award submissions is a great way to start because then you can be an award-winning architect and you might not even have a built project under your belt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great, a great idea. Uh, and, and the thing that sort of, sort of, uh, covers all of these things, all of these different pieces to the formula that we're talking about here, um, is at the end of the day, you have to do great architecture. Yep. Right. You and you do great architecture. You, uh, you thanks, have, Mark. You, you do great architecture. I want people to go and look at what you do because you, you do a very uh, beautiful style. It's it's well detailed, modern with traditional uh, feeling, and and it's really a, a traditional materials in a very modern way. I love I love your style and the way you you design, um, and that's so important to to do great architecture but there are a lot of architects out there when i talk about how do you build a successful firm there's so many architects out there that say just do great work and it'll work mm-hmm. but, but but that's not enough because we just went through all these different steps that are critical 
to the success. If you just did the great work, you would never be where you are today, both on a business level as well as the type of architecture that you're doing and, and the level of architecture you're doing. You'd never reach out to, you'd never connect to those clients that will allow you to do what you do today if you didn't put in the time to do all those other steps. That is so true. You know, a, a lot of thought and a lot of hard work goes into each thing. And we always say every line has a meaning. And, um, you know, every time we draw a line, it you know, it's not just a line. That might mean it's a, you know, it's a, a, a detail on a door frame or on a cabinet. You know, so much thought goes into every line. Um, but at the end of the day, we want the architecture itself to really resonate with not only our clients, but with their friends and for our team here in the office to really feel proud about what they do. And my team here, I think they're amazing. And I've had, I have people here in my office, not just one, but several um, who've been here 16 years, 18 years. And we really are a family here. And I treat everybody here in this office as part of this team. All of us do everything. Um, is, you know, we're just all trying to move the ball forward to the next great thing. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's part of that team that we talked about before building that team, but, but then making sure that team is developed and, and mm -hmm. that they, that they feel relevant and that mm -hmm. they, they feel appreciated is a, such, it's so critical that they get credit when, you, when you get those awards that you bring your team up with you. Every um, time I've seen that happen over and over again, that you, that you are not up there all by yourself. You're up no, there with I your, always your clients, them. It's so you're true. with your team, you're with your consultants. They're all out there and you present it as a team, a team effort. Um, mm -hmm. Very, very important. Thank you, Carol, for sharing all these, these pieces of information, this, the knowledge that you have. It, it's, uh, it's very valuable. And I, I think that it's, it's so important to see that it's not just great architecture. You can't do it without great architecture, but you can't do it with architecture alone. You need to put in all these other pieces to make it work. Um, I love what we what we talked about, how you can sort of go from a sole practitioner to how do you take that first step to become a bigger firm, to do those types of you know, types of work that you really want to do. Uh, you shared so much today. I wanna ask you one more question that I ask everybody here at Entree Architect Podcast. What is one thing, and you, gave, you have given us multiple things, but, but what is one thing that an entrepreneur architect can do today? So it's something in short, short term to build a better business for tomorrow, something that they can sort of see some results in a relatively quick time. Hmm. Aside from take care of themselves, because if they stay up all night, they're going to be of no use to anyone. I think that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> that's something I've recently learned. <laughs> you know, that, you know, and in, in, in that little tidbit, you know, that work-life balance thing always comes into play. And honestly, that's that first step of when you're taking care of yourself and being your best self and, you know, reaching out and getting an, an additional right hand and a left hand. Those are steps, you know, that help move you on to the next step. So um, I'd say build that triangle. Yeah, build the triangle. Excellent. Carol, thank you very much for joining me here today and for sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. It was great, Mark. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for inviting me. If you liked what we shared here today, share it with a friend. Think about one person right now who might benefit from listening to what Carol and I shared here today at Entree Architect Podcast and send them the URL entrearchitect.com slash episode 183. Complete show notes and a direct link to download this episode will be found 
at that URL, entrearchitect.com slash episode 183. And don't forget to visit the website to learn more about Entree Architect Academy, our private online membership program that we built for you, the Entree Architect community. You, small firm architects, you can build a better business and we can show you how. Go check out the website at entrearchitect.com. Right there on the homepage, you can learn all about what we're doing, how to join, how much it costs. Go check it out right now, entrearchitect.com. And my name is Mark Arlapage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. 
there is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.